There are two different stories told about this same land. Two different histories. Almost as if there were two Egypts. This ancient land has always partaken of a dual nature. The public face of Egypt is known the world over and told in every history book. But there is another side of Egypt that is not so widely known. Egypt is also a land of secrets. Another history, a secret history, tells of Egypt as the inheritor of deep wisdom and magical ability from an even earlier culture. It is the account of the Egyptians themselves. This alternate history is echoed by parallel accounts from the myth and history of other ancient cultures as well as myriad secret societies and occult sources. The remarkable number of parallels in these stories provides a unique window into this other Egypt. In this series, we will take a look at the shadowy history and magical practices of this other Egypt. Egypt as the keeper of secrets. The land of riddles. The birthplace of magic and the home of the mystery schools. As we join symbolist author and Egyptologist John Anthony West for a symbolist tour of magical Egypt, we will explore not only the sacred sites, but the ancient teachings that lie concealed there. We will see the ancient mysteries through a decoding lens, a cipher that brings the lost magic to life and returns to humanity the teachings and magic of our ancestors. I think it would be possible to say that Egypt regarded the entire universe as, as an act of, a gigantic act of magic, um, the transformation of consciousness into the material universe. Did ancient Egypt inherit its mysterious abilities from an even older culture, lost to history and forgotten by the modern world? Welcome back to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. This is episode 38. In today's podcast, um, we're going to be listening to a soundtrack from an eight-set a DVD set by the name of Magical Egypt, uh, produced by John Anthony West, who has recently passed away. Uh, in, in my first or second podcast, I mentioned a few DVDs and books and things that I've read, and uh, I mentioned Magical Egypt, and I said it was an eight-part DVD, and I said, you know, if I had, you know, if I had to pay for it, I'd, it'd be worth five hundred dollars. I wasn't kidding. Um, I actually. 
uh, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, I did purchase it, uh, this Magic Leader from his website, John Anthony West. I don't remember exactly how much I paid. I bought the first DVD, and immediately I ended up purchasing the other seven. So these are from a DVD set that I do own, and uh, it's DVD set, but this is the audio portion of it. The depth and the information contained within this DVD set, even though it's from a visual DVD set, just the audio part itself is rich enough for you to learn, listen, and really, really be exposed to what ancient Egypt was. And the best um, proponent and the best student and scholar of ancient Egypt in my book is by far, by far, John Anthony West. And you're going to hear that come through loud and clear in this uh, in these eight episodes that are coming up. Uh, if you're not into ancient Egypt, I suggest you listen to it because this is really unconventional stuff. And John Anthony West really looks at it at a completely different way that no one else has ever looked at it. Um, recently, some some information has come out about the Sphinx that you know they say it's four thousand years old, three thousand four hundred years, you know, four thousand years old. And actually, there's rain erosion, erosion from rain on it, and it hasn't rained in Egypt that much, I think, since 40,000 years ago. So, and this kind of, you know, there was a Dr. Shock from Boston University that was a colleague of John Anthony West, and, they, you know, they, they in the DVD, you'll hear them discuss this, and just now it's coming out that it could be true. Um... I cannot say enough about John Anthony West. I cannot say enough about this DVD series, and I cannot say enough about ancient Egypt. Um, with my interest, you know, I have a lot of interest in, in Eastern philosophy and Eastern thinking, but I'm a student of history, uh, really into that Mediterranean area of ancient history, especially, you know, Rome, Carthage, um, the Greeks, okay, the Babylonians. Um, so that, that whole area really fascinates me, but the most mysterious and the most profound and the granddaddy of them all is ancient Egypt. Even the Greeks got the Hermeticism from, uh, from ancient, from ancient Egypt. Uh, you have, now there's one, one, as we get into this, they get into some mystical stuff. And, um, the one thing that I, that I do see about ancient Egypt, and I'm going to go a little deep on you, but. If you go into the Garden of Eden and you have the tree of uh, eternal life and you have the tree of knowledge, that's basically duality right there, the yin and yang, the good and evil. And that's just the way it comes. Um, I, I make this statement all the time and it kind of freaks people out and blows people away, but I'm, I'm just going to say it. And the question I ask is, where does evil come from? And people are like, oh, the devil or whatever. Right away, the devil, oh, evil. No, the devil chose evil. Everything that exists comes from God. And the thing is that God does not want robots, does not want automatons. If people follow, and God is whatever label you want to put on it, Allah or Jehovah, whatever label you want to put, there's one supreme God, whether you believe in it or not, because this is not an accident. But any, I digress. But God does not want people to follow him as a robot, you know, just automatically, you know, pre-programmed, pre-packaged just to follow him. If people are going to follow him, he wants them to make do that by choice. And choice is a very big word. It's a loaded word. That's why when God put him in the Garden of Eden, and I believe that the Garden of Eden is an allegory. 
you know it's like a metaphor for for some very deeper spiritual meaning but one of the meanings from that garden of eden is the is the metaphor or the allegory of choice choosing between the tree of eternal knowledge or choosing from the tree of eternal life now here's what i'm kind of getting at when you're getting to deep true knowledge it all comes from one source which is god that's why i'm saying when i ask the question where does evil come from it comes from god because he put it out there as a choice for us to take god is not evil god is good and god is light however god created everything and there's nothing that exists without having god created it the reason that you have darkness is so that light can rest upon it or the reason you have light is so that darkness they the one needs the other one cannot exist without the other um so it's out there you know to give us a choice of, of what we want to do so th that freaks some people out and blows some people away but that's that's if you read into it that's exactly what it is it's the yin and yang of everything and um in that way when you choose to pursue god and follow god and his teachings and everything like that then he know, he knows that that's something you're doing by choice and the adverse if you go in the other direction and you go towards the darkness and uh you know it comes up then you know what that was a choice that you made and it's it wasn't by mistake so it's just manifest it's there so the re and again the reason i'm getting that is when you get into ancient egypt you're getting you're getting it full blast um and there's i in my opinion in my belief there's some dark occultism that's involved with some egyptian uh teachings just like there is some you know good and light in the teachings oh i'm going to digress really back to the good and evil and god and such everything in this existence and i've said this a couple of times in this podcast but everything in this existence is duplicitous and i can prove it because everything in this earth can be broken down to its smallest molecule and every molecule molecule atom to smallest component is the atom and atoms have a positive and negative charge protons and electrons a positive and negative charge everything in existence except for one thing and that's a photon if you break a photon down to its smallest component it's singular it's a singular thing. It doesn't have a positive or negative charge. It's just a photon of light. And God is light. God says it in his book. He's light. And that smallest photon of light supports all of life on this planet through photosynthesis. So without that sing so all of life is supported by the singular one photon. So that's a little something to reflect on. Anyway, back to ancient Egypt. Um, there is darkness in, in some of these teachings. Um and uh, you know i've done a lot of research and reading and i started looking into like the uh, emerald tablets of thoth and some hermeticism and different things like that and as i looked into it i i kind of saw myself kind of drawing back some of it really does interest me but it's something that i'm not ready prepared for or, or want to choose to go down that path um you know there's just something there that where the man man sees himself as empowering himself almost to the level of god and just some things that i see in there that i don't like and it's a choice that i don't want to make I, I i it's fascinating uh and i love reading about a lot of different things and you can you know you need to learn these things because if you're going to discuss them and be open-minded that you need to have this knowledge and understanding of things but you also it's also a choice 
of how far down you go that path. You know, it's one thing to know about something, and it's another thing to worship it or or be a devotee of it. Uh, I always say that I'm cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Um, I'm not a Bible-thumping Christian, you know, believing in a mythical guy in the clouds and everything like that. But when it comes down to it, there's a lot of evil out there, a lot of voodoo, a lot of really bad stuff out there. So my choice is I'm cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. That's my Savior, the Lamb slain from the foundations of the earth. Again, I don't want to get all biblical and everything like that, but I'll put it out there just the way it is. A lot of times, I'm Hispanic, I'm Puerto Rican, and in my culture there's a lot of santeria and a lot of stuff like that. And I notice that a lot of people in my culture and cultures similar to mine, they really freak out with that stuff. Oh, he's going to put a hex or whatever. But my answer to all of that is the blood of Jesus. And I'll keep it real simple. Do Choose with that what you will. Uh, it is what it is. I'm a regular dude. I mean, like I said, I'm not a Bible-thumping, judgmental type, you know, whatever. But, you know, facts is facts, man. You know, it is what it is. Um, it's good to know. It's really good to know who you follow and who you, who you serve. Um, so, yeah, some of this Hermeticism and some of this ancient Egypt stuff is really interesting. But, you know, just with a little bit of caution as you go down that path. You know, again, it's your choice. But ancient Egypt, you know, that's where the mystery schools come from, the Illuminati, the Freemasons, uh, sacred geometry, and just a whole plethora of things. You had that uh, Alexandria, that library at Alexandria where all the books were burned, uh, which is kind of curious because who knows what knowledge was contained in those books. But anyway, I, I'll take it, it, we'll turn it into another direction. They, they created the pyramids, the Sphinx, and everything that they did, there was no... And it'll all come out in these DVDs. There was no chance, no randomness. This stuff is just amazing. Just the, the, They used the pie and phi. And another thing that amazes me, you know, that 3.14 pie, they chose to make their sculptures and their art in granite, which is like one of the hardest substances known to man. And I believe on the hardness scale, a diamond is 10 and granite is like 7. And they used Danarite which I believe is like 9 on the harder scale, 9 out of 10, Danarite. Um, and when they made these sculptures, first of all, they looked like the perfect, let's say if it was a pharaoh, it was a perfect image of a face. And if you, they dissected it like an, on the picture and float, folded the picture over itself, it was a mirror image of each side. And how they did that with copper, um, copper tools and implements and stuff, I have no idea. They didn't use copper. Uh, who knows what they used? I, I kind of believe, to some degree, that there was had something to do with sound or something, and they softened the stone. So that's something a little bit beyond our comprehension, and that's just speculation. But I believe that they had to have been able to soften the stone to be able to do all of this. Um, There's a lot of interesting stuff. I don't want to ramble on too much because um, I cannot express it anywhere as clearly and succinctly and gracefully as John Anthony West did. He was a master. He was a master. So what we're going to do, and I'm going to keep my commentary down on the following um, DVDs. I'm just doing it for this one just to give an introduction to it and my, my views of it. But ancient Egypt might be the most fascinating of all the ancient civilizations ever. They were just amazing, man. And I know I keep using that word, but it is what it is, man. Um, I I'm In the link, I'm going to put a link to John Anthony West's website. As, and I highly recommend. Now, if you like the audio, the video will just blow you away. They used to be on YouTube, all of these videos, but I think part one, which you're going to hear now, is on YouTube. You can search it. It's called Magical Egypt, John Anthony West. Um, 
and I encourage you to go to the show notes, go and support his website, buy the DVDs, buy the first one, or if you like listening to them, buy all eight, because I'll tell you something, the visual on this, it's unreal, man, it's unreal, you have to watch this, this is probably one of my favorite series ever to watch. Again, I'm rambling, uh, but just want to give a little setup for, for these for these uh, series, because you're going to get eight of them. And I'll do a very brief introduction in the next ones, if, if any. I might just play them. So, hopefully you're going to enjoy this. Uh, Magical Egypt, John Anthony West, and this is Disc 1, the audio. This episode is intended for fair use and educational purposes only, and not to be reproduced in any way, shape, or form. And this is the property of John Anthony West, Magical Egypt. Again, this is for fair use and educational purposes only. Although Western civilization is generally considered to be the product of Greek and Roman culture, the Greeks and Romans both acknowledge ancient Egypt as the source of great ancient wisdom. A mysterious land of riddles whose secrets were considered the highest prize to some of the greatest minds in history. Egypt was known to the ancient world as a repository of high knowledge and magical practices. These universal secrets were contained and kept alive in the mystery schools. The teachings and magical ability they imparted were held in the highest secrecy and reverence. Entrance to the temples that held the secrets was tightly restricted. They were the domain of royalty, priests and privileged initiates. Forefathers of modern thought, such as Pythagoras, Plato, and others, tell of waiting more than 20 years preparing before acceptance into the mystery schools. The secret teachings were known as esoteric, or occult, or symbolist teachings, and were held to contain the secrets of the universe and the keys to great magic. Those who were allowed to receive the mysteries often went on to join a who's who of historical movers and shakers. Pythagoras, Plato, Aristotle, Galileo, Copernicus, Da Vinci, Kepler, Isaac Newton, Napoleon. They were rewarded for their pursuit of the ancient wisdom with not just knowledge, but a new way of thinking that allowed them to write their names in human history. Hermeticism and the writings from the Hermetica were held to be the Western retelling of the wisdom from the mystery schools. They contained, albeit in a degenerated form, strains of the ancient wisdom said to have been passed down from the gods. There are fragmentary Hermetic texts um, dating from, dates in dispute, but dating from 
third, second, first centuries AD, in which the language and mode of expression is ancient Greek, but the subject matter is, if not entirely, largely derived from or actually uh, uh, a part of the ancient Egyptian doctrine of the transformation of the soul. This is the basis of the Hermetic belief, and it then proliferates into those various disciplines, uh, rises, is, is, is practiced in one form or another in, throughout Islam, uh, percolates up into Western Europe in the Italian Renaissance, and then occupies much of the minds and hearts and studies of, the, of, of major Renaissance figures up to and including Isaac Newton, who actually spent much more time of his life studying alchemy and number symbolism than he did studying what would now be uh, modern science. This is a, an acknowledged fact that is seldom acknowledged by modern scientists. But as a matter of fact, um, Newton might be called um, not one of the last, certainly, but um, one of the most eminent of the Hermeticists. Although today, in much of the Western academic world, the symbolist interpretation of ancient Egypt is vigorously opposed, in its ancestral form it was the object of great fascination, and in some cases obsession, with some of the greatest minds and forces in human history. The term mystery schools refers not to a specific place or time in ancient Egypt, but the timeless teachings passed down through word of mouth, encrypted into the temples, concealed and enshrined behind a veil of hieroglyphs and symbolism. What secrets were held in the mystery schools that made them so important, so sought after? One of the secrets was an alternate history of human past that is cyclical. Civilization, consciousness, understanding and ability, rising to incredible heights in the distant past and then falling back into barbarism again and again, like the waves of high and low tides. This story has resonance in all cultures in the stories of the flood or the periodic catastrophes from many ancient myths. In this alternative model of our past, a vast accumulation of knowledge and ability was inherited from previous epochs. A legacy of high wisdom from an incredibly distant past is the source of the mysteriously powerful and unexplained accomplishments of the ancients. Accomplishments which even by today's standards seem in scope and operation to be nothing short of feats of magic. Ancient Egypt wielded a mastery over the material world that bordered on the supernatural. It seemed at times almost alien. Its art and architecture showing not only an understanding, but an eerie control of the invisible forces and building blocks of our material world. Rightly considered powerful and dangerous tool, it was guarded with the utmost secrecy. 
Some priests accepted death before divulging the secrets to conquering Roman usurper pharaohs. Where did they learn the science behind these incredible acts? And stranger still, how could these abilities just appear, seemingly complete, at the very beginnings of Egyptian history? Where did the knowledge come from? The Egyptians, both ancient and modern, remain curiously silent on this topic. Egypt seems to have started out at its height and gradually declined. Like a copy of a copy of a copy. Over the centuries, the mysteries held a little less with each successive retelling. In an attempt to guard the magic from abuse at the hands of the profane public, the mystery schools went into hiding. The ancient secrets were shrouded in allegory and symbol and placed under the guardianship of various streams of initiatic societies. In time, it appeared that many, if not all, connections to the original source were severed or so diluted that the true mysteries were lost to history. Over the millennia, the temples fell into ruin and eventually so did the teachings they enshrined. All hope of reconnection to the wisdom of the past seemed lost. When we return, we look at an unusual man who returned to the modern world the teachings and wisdom of the ancient mystery schools. The secrets of the mystery schools seemed lost to history when in 1937 a most unusual man again reopened a window into this culture and the magical technology that was its legacy. R.A. Schwaler de Lubitz was a latter-day alchemist as well as an accomplished mathematician, chemist, author and philosopher. Schwaler opened a window into the lost magic and mentality of the ancients. Through an ingenious reinterpretation of the evidence, Schwaller recreated a model of ancient Egypt that resurrects the ancient secrets for modern eyes. Understanding the mentality of the ancient world through the decoding lens of symbolism, Schwaller showed the Egyptians were not the superstitious savages modern Western academic thought holds them to have been. Instead, he showed example after example of high wisdom and accomplishment, not only equaling that of modern science, but in some instances, far surpassing modern abilities. The key that unlocked the ancient veil lie in a slight change in perspective of mindset. As one learns to enter the mindset of pharaonic Egypt, the cryptic message from the past comes to life and allows access to previously invisible and unimagined realms of consciousness understanding and ability. The crux of the old teachings was contained and transmitted through what Schwaller called sacred science. Sacred science was the original unified source of the myriad streams of modern mysticism, occultism, esotericism and magical disciplines that exist today. It is also the unified source for such diverse contemporary sciences as chemistry, physical science, philosophy, medicine, astronomy, geometry, architecture, music and mathematics. 
through the linchpin of sacred sciences, Schwaller not only showed an original unity of the material sciences, but even shed new light on such shadowy subjects as the tarot, astrology, and many, many other forms of magic. Schwaller spent over a decade on site at Luxor Temple, which would come to be known as the Temple of Man. It was here that he performed his master work. A Latter-day Renaissance man. He was born in the 1890s, died in the early 1960s, and was, among other things, a practicing Latter-day alchemist, um, and very much deeply involved in alchemy. He was also thoroughly conversant with the esoteric and mystical traditions of the East, and at the same time, equally conversant and familiar with the modern developments in science, mathematics, physics, and so on. It was Schwaller who, in two decades of work in Egypt, mainly at the Temple of Luxor, um, who reformulated in transmittable and accessible fashion the wisdom of the ancients. It is through Schwaller that we're able, for the first time, to actually gain access to the doctrine, the the, the, the sacred science or sacred sciences responsible for those astonishing resonating temples, pyramids and tombs. Prior to Schwaller, there was a long-standing tradition dating back to the Greeks themselves in which ancient Egypt was the fount of all wisdom which subsequently degenerated and, and dispersed over time. Uh, but prior to Schwaller, it was impossible to actually argue from documented evidence that this was indeed the case. Schwaller provides the documentation in impeccable form. It's there to be disproved if anyone can do so. In the 50 years since Schwaller produced the body of his work, um, a number of scholars have um, abused him roundly, but none have actually offered anything resembling satisfactory disproof or discredit to his extraordinary works. In its own way, the Temple of Man was a kind of Rosetta Stone. It contained the means within itself, Schwaller, to decode and reconstruct the layers and subtleties of the symbolic and sacred technology of the ancient mysteries. Schwaller showed that the temple was not just the location of the teaching, but was itself the teaching. Hieroglyphics and harmonic proportions contained a catalogue of the occult laws, sacred geometry and archetypal forces that combined to make the universe and its culmination living man. Through a chain of analogies, occult correspondences, sacred geometry and symbolism, the temple itself becomes the actual technology through which one can undergo the initiation process and begin to experience the mentality and magic of the ancients. The temple echoes and amplifies the great arcanum, as above, so below. Man and the cosmos can be seen to be magically analogous, governed by the same rules of sacred geometry, each an octave of the other. After Schwaller's death, the torch was picked up by a new generation of symbolists. 
one of the most venerated of whom is John Anthony West. West brought the obscure French work to the public eye in the symbolist classic, Serpent in the Sky. West not only rekindled Schwaller's revelations, but built upon them in a manner that acted like a fulcrum, upsetting the stoic worlds of archaeology, theology, and science. When Serpent was published, shockwaves erupted as evidence that lay in full view of all at the very site of the Great Sphinx exploded. An observation by Schwaller, mentioned in passing, caught West's attention. Schwaller noticed and recorded the fact that vertical fissures cut deep into the walls of the Sphinx enclosure. These vertical fissures were unmistakable signs of precipitation-induced erosion. They were the telltale sign of exposure to years and years of rain. But it hasn't rained to any considerable extent in the Sahara Desert since before the Ice Age. It seems to suggest that the Sphinx was there prior to those catastrophic events that put the rest of the civilization down. West enlisted the help of geologist Robert Schock to present a revised model of Egyptian history based on geological data, including the evidence that suggests that this man-made structure shows signs of exposure to weather conditions that haven't been present since the harsh end of the last ice age. Could this be proof that the Sphinx, or at least the Sphinx enclosure, was the product of an even older civilization? predating the catastrophic events at the end of the last ice age? We believe that our Sphinx theory, the water weathering of the Sphinx, is evidence of those of that earlier civilization. And there are other bits and pieces of geological evidence and architectural evidence that we believe supports the theory of an advanced, or let us say, again, within carefully, within inverted quotes, an Atlantean civilization. But this is the big issue, whether or not there was such a civilization. We have, of course, on the textual side, we have Plato's account of Atlantis that supposedly came to him from his grandfather Solon, who himself got it from an Egyptian priest. This would be somewhere around 6th or 7th centuries BC, somewhere that kind of area. And of course, we also have throughout the world, around the world, everywhere in the higher <clears throat> or more sophisticated civilizations, as well as in the mythologies and legends of widely separated uh, traditional societies, we have accounts, virtually all of them have accounts of a deluge. A deluge is a is a, is a commonplace, and in many of them, if not in all, there are also references to vanished civilizations, vanished high levels of civilization, golden ages in the past, and the ubiquity of these stories is enough to make, I would believe, any serious scholar at least hold an open mind to the possibility that these advanced civilizations did indeed exist and that they did indeed go down or disappear virtually entirely under the, under the catastrophic conditions prevailing for several thousands of years following the event, whatever it may have been, or events that uh, initiated the, the, the melting of the ice and the dissolution of the last ice age. As we join West for a symbolist tour of Egypt, we begin to glimpse the magic and mystery still waiting here. Encoded into the ruins are the preserved seeds of a technology and mentality that by comparison to even modern standards are at the far edge of comprehension.
When we return, another secret of the Egyptian mysteries. One of the most famous of the students of the mystery schools is the legendary Pythagoras. Pythagoras waited and prepared for 20 years before his initiation into this science of the invisible. He went on to start a revolution in thinking when he revealed to the profane world another secret of the Egyptian mysteries. In the simple and irrefutable science of geometry lie the secrets of the universe and of life itself. Pythagoras returned the lost key of meaning to the alchemical maxim, as above, so below. The universe and man as the embodiment of the universe live and work by the same rules, are brought into and out of existence by the same forces and are both subject to the same laws. Each can be understood using the same maps. The shapes and forces described by sacred geometry are the roadmap perhaps even the seed of life itself. In the design of the Temple of Karnak, we observed firsthand the sacred geometry that was the source of Pythagoras' inspiration. The invisible science of the ancients was preserved and at the same time veiled behind the symbolism and measure of the temple. The temple itself was the embodiment of the ancient teaching of the mystery schools. Its living walls enshrine and forever teach an understanding of the deep secrets of creation. Its sacred geometry enshrines and mirrors the fundamental geometric laws that are the working schematics of the creator universe and life within it. The temple is consecrated to Amun, the invisible. The animator of form, the breath of life across the waters. The temple is the house of Amun. For a time, it was the living body of Amun. Over the 500 year span of its active life, the temple lived and grew by the same laws of sacred geometry that govern organic life and growth. It was, for a time, animated by the voice of life. It was host to Amun. The temple incorporates an archetypal or natural geometry that lies behind all of life. This geometry is the result of a mysterious number pattern that occurs throughout nature, known to the modern world as the Fibonacci series. The invisible voice of life shows itself in the material world through an interplay of numbers and form. These primal archetypal forms are the template and seeds of life. The sacred geometry expressed in the Fibonacci series allows us to clearly see this invisible other world that is the mysterious source of life.
To better understand the role of the Fibonacci series and organic geometry in the world around us, we met with Michael Schneider, author of A Beginner's Guide to Constructing the Universe. Michael demonstrates the dynamic presence of the Fibonacci sequence in the living, growing world. Well, the Fibonacci numbers refers to a sequence of numbers that grow by continual expansion, but a very special balanced growth expansion. And the mathematical definition of them, really is an archetypal pattern, starts off with the numbers 0 and 1. 0 sort of acts like a seed in a sense. 0 and 1, and the rule is that each next term is the sum of the two previous terms. So 0 plus 1 make 1, 1 plus 1 make 2, 1 plus 2 make 3, 2 and 3 make 5, 3 and 5 make 8, 13, 21, 34, 55, 89, 144, 233, and endless. But it's an expansive pattern that shows organic growth patterns that occur all through nature. The invisible Fibonacci spiral shows itself in the visible world in the nautilus shell, the sunflower, and the branching of trees. This mathematical sequence charts nature's progress of organic spiraling growth through self-accumulation. The appearance of this sequence, embodied by the Fibonacci spiral or golden spiral in plants, animals, or solar systems, tells us that the Fibonacci sequence and phi ratio underlie an internal harmony, excellence, and dynamic balance during the inevitable growth and dissolution processes. It is the play of life itself, clothed in the four states of matter. These characteristics are the open secret of balance of animal horns, seashells, plants, and galaxies. For example, as the chambered nautilus creature grows larger, the gland that exudes shell material also grows, building a widening shell. The shell's golden spiral shape maintains the same center of gravity at any size, so the nautilus need not learn how to balance itself as it matures. The same is true for the growing horns of a ram. As the horn material accumulates, growing larger and more massive, its golden spiral shape maintains the same center of gravity. Thus, the ram need not adjust its posture throughout life to uphold its growing horns. Similarly, the tree that puts out branches and leaves and spiral staircases up and around their respective trunks can get enormously large, yet the tree always balances, no matter how massive and complex it grows to be. And so any kind of organic expansion will benefit from this kind of growth that incorporates balance, physical balance. Uh, it will pack the most seeds in the least space. Um, and whenever you find these Fibonacci numbers, you also find spirals. And the benefit of the spiral is, of course, organic, expansive growth in a, in, in a kind of a fashion that will also maximize uh, all the benefits of the seed properties and so forth. The way they show up in the uh, plant world, the plant world is rife with these numbers. Uh, for example, in this artichoke flower, I will simply, let's see, I'll draw a, uh, a mark so we know where we started on this, and I'll count this row of petals as one row. And what I'm going to do is count the numbers of parallel rows of petals. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and then back to the beginning. So there are eight rows leading in this direction. 
but each petal plays a role in two directions. So I can also think of these as spiraling this way. And if I count the numbers of parallel rows here, if we'll count that as one, two, three, four, five, and back to the beginning. So there are eight in this direction, five in that direction. That's what you find throughout nature. Two consecutive Fibonacci numbers uh, composing the same structure. And what this does, what this number pattern does, is it gives perfect balance to the structure as it's growing. Not as a static structure, but these Fibonacci numbers and the spiral, the logarithmic organic spiral that occurs with them, uh, balances through growth, transformation, expansion. And that's the beauty of this. It's balanced through growth and change through these numbers. It's an organic expansion from that, you might say, zero seed to as large as you like, but it's always going to have a self-resembling property. It's the closest, the, the, the logarithmic spiral is the closest definition you can get to a definition of life. The Fibonacci numbers and the sacred geometry they produce seem to be the very voice of life. When we return, we'll see how these numbers were employed in ancient architecture to give life to the temples. As House of Life, consecrated to organic growth and the living world, it is difficult to imagine a more perfect template for the design of Karnak than those patterns governing and animating life itself. To further investigate the presence of the Fibonacci series in the design of Karnak, we went to UCLA campus in Los Angeles. We found a very rare print of a book containing architectural studies of sacred geometry and harmonic design in the temples and monoliths of ancient Egypt. The book is the master work of architectural historian Alexander Badawi. It shows the Temple of Karnak to be based upon the same Fibonacci number series that is the very voice of life. Well, in, in this book of uh, harmonic design, uh, Alexander Badawi, an art historian and architectural historian, an Egyptologist, um, determines that in the great temple of Karnak and just about everywhere else in Egypt, um, very sophisticated harmonic design is what's responsible for the temples, and it is that harmonic design that is in turn responsible the effect these temples produce. Um, in Karnak in particular, the Fibonacci series is employed in a variety of sophisticated and different ways, and the, the, and the Fibonacci series in particular is related to the golden section and to the processes of organic growth. In this temple that is consecrated to the material universe, or the let's say the animated universe, particularly significant that the a, a mathematical proportion that is that is found everywhere in nature in the 
and in the way that things grow from sunflower seeds to nautilus shells, this Fibonacci series should be employed to determine the various proportions of the temple itself. Where are those numbers here? As the temple expands from the original seed, each new stage of growth progresses according to the next increment of the Fibonacci series. 34, 55, 89, 144, 233, 377. These are the numbers, the ascending numbers of the Fibonacci series. Specifically um, consecrated to or dedicated to the principle of the creation of the organic world, the living world. And in keeping with that, uh, not only is it in a state of constant creation, but the temple itself is a kind of representation of ideal but even actual um, organic growth. The temple is consecrated to Amon and his role of animator of form, of the breath or the spirit of life across the waters. Uh, one of the more fluid in Egyptologists, Alexander Bagawi, who was an expert on, a specialist in, in architecture, worked out that the Fibonacci series is the, is the template, is the template upon which this entire gigantic construction is based. And to the best of my knowledge, uh, the, 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 the archaeologists and Egyptologists don't contest this finding. But what they don't do is recognize its significance, because what's significant about it is that the Egyptians, A, they knew the Fibonacci spiral. Not only did they know the Fibonacci spiral in the series, but they understood full well the role that that played in the organization of the organic world. That's something else again. They know that then they're talking about a very high and a sacred science, which is of course exactly what they tried to deny with, with ancient Egypt. So that's what's, that's, that's what's going on here in, the, in this particular temple. And in fact, it's, it's been found, the Fibonacci series has been found in other Egyptian constructions as well, but here's the best and most complete expression of it, exactly in the temple that is in fact consecrated to organic to the organic world and that's something that even the, you know the academics don't deny that that's, that's the function of this they don't understand that it's part of a complete understanding of, of the genesis of the universe like so many things it was known in deep antiquity but Particularly when you see Fibonacci spiral associated with a gigantic temple that is consecrated to the principle of organic growth, which becomes very interesting. Entrance to the temple is flanked by a colonnade of ram-headed sphinxes. The ram is symbolically associated with Amun, and aside from its astrological implications, is an embodiment of the Fibonacci spiral in the shape of its horns. The sacred geometry of the Fibonacci series infused the entire temple, literally brought it to life. The temple is the living embodiment of the numbers and patterns that are the very voice of life. The harmonic design acted as a kind of template, a 
affecting us, changing us, inspiring us. Bridging the gap between the archetypal and physical worlds. Bringing us into the mindset appropriate to commune with the deity or netta to which the temple was consecrated. When understood in the true meaning of netta, Amun becomes the archetype, the embodiment of the invisible forces, laws and forms of life, the physical expression of the laws of nature. Rudolf Steiner, an influential modern mystic from the turn of the century, provides an insight into the thinking and sophistication of the ancients through a thought exercise. Hold a seed in one hand and a stone of similar size in the other. Look at them both and try to visualize how they are the same and how they are different. When the breakthrough occurs, we suddenly see into a higher dimension the fourth dimension of growth. All living things live in an additional dimension of growth, expansion, and organic change over time. As the living representation of the forces of life, the Temple of Karnak was itself alive. It existed in at least four dimensions. In a stunning but not isolated example of 4D architecture, the Temple itself not only grew but grew in accordance with natural law. It was for a time host to Amun. It was animated by the wave of life, continuous construction passed down through the centuries like a torch from one generation to the next. The wave of life passed through it as it did the successive generations of those who worshipped within its living walls. Uh, not only is it in a state of constant creation, I think the earliest extant bits of this temple go from the date from the Middle Kingdom. Most of it is New Kingdom, some of it is Ptolemaic. And I believe that every single pharaoh has left some element or some piece of... Con every, every single pharaoh did something here, some, some bit of construction. It starts, as all temples do, with the Holy of Holies, the sanctuary, and then grows out. But in this case, it grows out sort of like an onion. In other words, it's in layers that go continually out and out and out and out. They're all together, 10 pylons here. I think six this way and four that way. So it's continually expanding. Each one has to have his stamp on, on this particular temple, not on other temples. Other temples are built often in one fell swoop, and then additions are made after one or two. But here, every single pharaoh does something or another. That's part of the overriding plan. The 500-year extended exercise in high magic. Karnak was a 500-year extended exercise in high magic. As each generation passes the torch to its successors, ensuring the continuity of human life, each generation continued the development of the temple according to the universal laws of growth. Individuals would come and go, but life itself continued. The House of Life was the embodiment of this divine continuity. What kind of culture, what kind of mind creates a blueprint that utilizes time as a dimension of the structure, perhaps as a function of the structure? 
Time itself was a necessary dimension in the faithful retelling, the faithful archetypal representation of this principle. Life is growth, and growth is a four-dimensional process. It was said that Egypt was made in the image of heaven. As above, so below. It is difficult to distinguish between witnessing the majesty and mystery of the temples and participating in the transformative process oneself. We are confronted by temples, by artwork, um, by pyramids, by structures that evoke in us a kind of emotion that is very hard to ascribe to mere superstition or romantification or romance. Um, and these temples are based upon principles that are in fact sacred sciences. They are, let us say, the science of immortality, the science of attaining eternal life. When we are in the presence of one of these Egyptian temples, we are, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, put into the presence of the divinity or the principle to which that temple is consecrated. And whether we like it or not, we respond often with awe and wonder. And this awe and wonder is not um, let us say, an artifact of our susceptible imagination or romanticism on our, our part. It's an example of the high science of the ancients, a sacred science. The sacred science, the timeless wisdom of the mystery schools. The keys to powerful magic have been preserved, enshrined behind a veil of harmony, precaution, myth, and symbolism. When seen through the symbolist decoder, these ancient ruins suddenly spring to life, opening a window on a bizarre landscape of arcane magic, working hand in hand with a science of bewildering complexity. Was the high science of the ancients an inheritance from an even earlier civilization? Join us next time as the investigation unfolds. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening and namaste.